Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. Good afternoon, and welcome to special coverage from St. Louis Public Radio of Missouri Governor Mike Parson's final State of the State Address. I'm Elaine Cha, the host of St. Louis Public Radio's talk show, St. Louis on the Air. In addition to welcoming our listeners in the St. Louis, Rolla, and Hannibal areas, we also welcome listeners of KBIA in Columbia, KSMU in Springfield, and KRCU in Cape Girardeau. We'll hear from Governor Mike Parson in just a bit. In the meantime, St. Louis Public Radio State House reporter Sarah Kellogg joins us from the Missouri House Chamber, where the governor will give his address shortly. Sarah, hello. Hi, Elaine. So give us a little bit of a sense of what you are seeing and, and hearing there. Well, I don't know if you can hear the background from what I'm talking to you, but it's quite noisy in here because there's a lot of people. Not only are there house members that are conversing with each other, but the three galleries that are reserved for the public are also full. You know, there's a lot of, I see a lot of little signs on seats, which seems like those are reserved seats. So maybe a lot of guests to the governor, but it's a pretty full house here. Mm -hmm. And that is typical for the state of the state? I mean, it's the governor outlining his budgetary priorities. He normally does have guests and people that he likes to introduce in his speech. Obviously, the chamber is full with not only House members, but also eventually will be Senate members. So I'd say it's pretty typical, but it's, it's, it's fun to see the chamber so full. That's not always the case, like in the middle of session. Right, right. Now, Sarah, can you give us just an outline of what it is you expect Governor Parsons' top priorities to be? You know, that's a really good question. He kind of keeps things pretty close to his vest as far as what he wants to accomplish. But there definitely are some things from last year's State of the State that I think that will come up again. Uh, last year, he made a big ask of an 8.7% raise for all state employees with extra pay for night shift workers. That was a big ask, and he wanted it done quickly, which it was. And now, you know, we're going to see if he'll ask for another raise for workers, maybe not that big, but another, you know, raise for workers to stay competitive with the private sector. Mm -hmm. Another thing he spoke about last year was child care subsidies and expanded access to pre-K. I wouldn't be surprised to see that come up again. And, you know, he's really big on infrastructure, so I wouldn't be, you know, I think it's, it's a safe bet to say that something related to roads is probably going to be at his ask. Mm -hmm. So it's been a, a couple weeks or so since the legislative session got underway. Um, that started on, on January 3rd, and it's going to continue through mid-May. To what extent, Sarah, does the governor's priorities so far, you know, how do they align with those of lawmakers? You know, the governor really doesn't speak much on policy during the state of the state. It really is focused on the budget. So it's not super clear how much he wants to see done policy, how much it aligns. And actually, you know, some of the more conservative members of the House and Senate have lamented over how large of a budget it's gotten the last two sessions. And that's mainly because of federal COVID dollars. But at the same time, there's kind of been a disconnect of what he wants budget-wise and what the legislature wants. One thing he did do before session started was an executive order on foreign ownership of farmland, mm -hmm. and that does reflect possible work of the legislature to go towards that. But as far as other legislation, I'm not quite sure yet. Okay. Well, speaking of what is going on sort of within, uh, yesterday, Senate President Pro Tem Caleb Rowden stripped several members of the Missouri Freedom Caucus from chairmanships of committees. That was a big step, but Sarah, first remind us of what the Misery Freedom Caucus is. 
Yeah, the Freedom Caucus is new. It's about a dozen, not quite a dozen House members and senators, and they say their goal is to advance conservative priorities in the legislature. In the Senate, four of those members used to belong to former conservative caucus members, which disbanded before last session, but I feel like if you would talk to some other Republicans in the Senate, they would say they really didn't disband. You know, Senate members of the caucus have made news for the last few weeks for delaying work in the Senate to advance, you know, to advocate for their causes. Mm-hmm. And Rowden, he called fellow members of the Republican caucus, quote, swamp creatures. I mean, that's, uh, that is not shy. It was bold. <laughs> yeah. It was definitely a bold statement. You know, he said this was a move that was a long time coming for maybe some other members of, of the Senate. And he told reporters yesterday that he told his fellow Republican caucus members that the only way that decorum could get worse in the Senate is if these members who have delayed, spoke out over several sessions now, you know, right off the bat, beginning of session, began to basically hold up business. And that's, you know, he says that's what happened, which is why he took that action and honestly for him i believe the real straw on you know that broke the camel's back was holding up a set of gubernatorial uh, appointments in order to because uh, the caucus wanted advancement and more work done on initiative petition bill uh, resolutions mm-hmm. so for him that holding up of that work was really kind of the last uh you know like i said the straw that broke the camel's back and kind of caused him to move forward on these uh kind of uh, unprecedented actions. Yeah. So, I mean, stripping those members um, of chairmanships of committees, I mean, what effects will this move have from here on? Uh, That's a really good question that I think remains to be seen. Um, I know members of the caucus themselves say, you know, that's not going to get them to sit down and be quiet. They're going to continue to advocate for the cause they care about. That could mean continuing to block the gubernatorial appointments, which they say they will continue to do unless IP reform moves in the Senate. That could be talking, you know, filibustering the journal, it could be delaying other work. So they say they're not, you know, quieting down. But at the same time, Rowden said this is the first step that he took. That doesn't mean it could be the last step. So this, I, it's definitely not um, ease relationships in the Senate. And I guess we're just going to have to wait and see, you know, what the final impact is going to be. Mm-hmm. Now, insofar as those legislative priorities go, kind of to return to that, Something that must get done this session is the reauthorization of the federal reimbursement allowance, and that's a tax that hospitals pay to help fund the state's Medicaid program. Why is this important, Sarah? It's, it's a vital piece of Missouri's health care funding. As you said, it's a tax on hospitals, but nursing homes, pharmacies, ambulances, and ultimately, it funds most of Missouri's share of Medicaid payments. If that isn't done, then the money has to come from elsewhere in the budget or programs are cut. And Senate Floor Leader Cindy O'Loughlin, you know, she told me before session started that, you know, the total money involved is about $4 billion, And she says, quote, there's no way it doesn't get renewed. So that's a must pass for them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, last time back in 2021, just before I, I came on board for this job, you know, it took a special session to pass the FRA because there was an effort by some Republicans to eliminate Medicaid payments to Planned Parenthood, which led to arguments that language like that jeopardized the funding. And, you know, here we are, a new session years later, already there are calls from Freedom Caucus members to have that language again on this year's FRA reauthorization, which I'm sure will see significant pushback from other Republicans. Right, right. Well, you know, in terms of an item that has gotten a lot of attention, it has to do with those proposed changes to how constitutional amendments get made. And we've talked about that before, but tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, as I said, it's it's initiative petition reform, IP reform, or what they call IP reform, but ultimately Republicans want to make it harder for Missourians to be able to amend the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And that could be either through changing the, the most 
common one that I've seen is just raising the threshold of, of votes it needs to pass once it makes it on the ballot. But then there's questions of, well, maybe it could be a 50% plus one pass or, but it have to include like a majority of the congressional districts have to pass it. So there's a lot of questions of what that could be. And clearly this is a priority for Republicans in the Senate because they, uh, they, you know, at least in the Senate, they're holding up gubernatorial appointments. So there's right. a lot going on there of, of that being you know, a priority for them. But the, the thing is, is if they do pass this, it has to go to the voters where it isn't a guarantee that it's going to pass. You know, voters in Ohio rejected it. So did voters in Arkansas. So there's, a, you know, it's not a guarantee that it's actually going to go into effect if it were to pass the chamber. Mm-hmm. Well, and speaking of voting, I mean, this is an election year and that always impacts what gets done in Jefferson City. So Senate President Pro Tem Caleb Rowden, he said, quote, Political experts and onlookers don't think this session is going to matter too much. And my simple message is, let's prove them wrong. In what way, Sarah, do you think that this session could surpass election year expectations? You know, that was spoken on on the first day. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot has happened in three weeks now or on week four. (laughs) And, 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 you know, it's hard to not, it feels so pessimistic to say that, but, you know, seeing the consistent holding up of the Senate business to see the actions that Rowden took yesterday. It feels like, no, this is going to be an election year. People are vying for their time to speak, whether it be on their candidacies or just the issues that they really care about. And I don't know how different it's going to be. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you hate to say that you want to see the, you know, the building move forward on things, but I don't know. I just, I genuinely, I'm not sure after what I've observed these last few weeks. Yeah. Well, uh, the last few years is the, the amount of time that you've been reporting as the State House reporter for St. Louis Public Radio. And this is going to be the last uh, state of the state address that we hear from Governor Parson because of term limits. How do you think that that will be reflected in his speech, you know, this being his last one? I think he is going to talk a lot about his legacy and the things that he has accomplished over his year, you know, his tenure as a governor. Um, I think that's going to deal with issues of workforce and infrastructure. Those are big items for him. Um, I think education funding is going to be a big, uh, something he's going to talk about for, you know, this is another year that possibly they could fully fund education as well as fully fund education transportation, which was a big change they were able to do a couple years ago um, with, with, with the help of initial federal dollars. But now that's been consistent a couple years now that they've been able to fund transportation. We'll see if that's on the agenda again. Uh, I think that infrastructure, I, I mentioned that briefly, I think that's going to be huge. I think the I-70 project is definitely going to be mentioned. I think that's going to be reflected in what he talks about, his support for not only I-70, which again is going to go to three lanes uh, both directions, which is a huge project to entail mm-hmm. billions of dollars. But I think he'll talk about his work on bridges, on rural roads. I think there's a lot that he's going to say about just the, like the infrastructure of the state. He's also been big on, on workforce development and programs for that. So I think there's a lot that he's going to be considering in his final. So it, I think in a ways it is going to be a bit of a victory lap when he's talking about his speech. But I mean, I doesn't, you know, his job's not over. He still has this year. So we're going to see what else he decides to outline. And I don't know if there's going to be a big, big t- ticket item as big as I-70 like there was last year, but I I think it's going to be a little bit more like consistency of what he's wanting to to leave the state as, and hopefully what he would believe is better than he found it. Mm -hmm. We're waiting for Governor Mike Parson's annual State of the State address, and I'm speaking with St. Louis Public Radio State House reporter Sarah Kellogg. So Sarah, I think what you've presented is a little bit of what 
um, you would imagine that Governor Parson will present about his legacy. What do you think others would say about his legacy in, in the time that he served? Um, I, I, I mentioned this a little earlier when we were chatting, and it's I think that for some Republicans, it's going to be a too inflated budget that he spent too much money. I think that's going to be kind of a detractor from some of his more conservative colleagues. I think a lot of Democrats are actually going to applaud him for the same budget and, and, and investing in things that they would say that they have called for for years, whether that is pre-K access, child care access, uh, investments in, you know, investments in, in, in education, either higher ed or, or just K-12. I think those would be considered legacies. I think these budgets and how we navigated uh, the pandemic as a, like, a result of that, I think are going to be big parts of this legacy. I also think you can't, you know, downplay the appointments that he has made as governor. He's appointed at this point. He appointed, you know, after uh, Senator Josh Hawley, you know, then Attorney General, well, Parson appointed Eric Schmidt, who now is Senator Schmidt. He's appointed some, and he had appointed another attorney general. He's appointed several, you know, a treasurer or a lieutenant governor. So he's made a lot of appointments that ultimately have caused bigger waves in Missouri politics, especially when you're looking at, you know, one of the senators we have. So I think that his appointments are also going to be noted as something that had a pretty big, long, you know, lasting impact on Missouri. Mm-hmm. And I mean, overall, what is Governor Parson's relationship with Jefferson City lawmakers? I think that's a really interesting question. It's not like this isn't something that he's used to. He's a you know, state senator. And, and and being elevated to governor after being lieutenant governor, it's clear in which that means, you know, you're president of the Senate, so you're having that relationship with the senators. You're interacting with them more than, you know, maybe House members. But ultimately, despite all of that, I think that, oh, I believe that our speaker, I will say, I don't know, it's an interesting dynamic for him to have um, where I think he's kind of holds his cards to his chest and isn't as involved, mm-hmm. which whether that's good or bad, I think that's ultimately up to for people to decide. Okay. I will say right now that uh, 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 floor leaders, uh, Republican floor leader John Patterson is announcing for the beginning of the speech and the doors are just about to open. So we are, uh, doors are opening, uh, House members are standing and we're about to begin the professional of the senators that lead to Governor Parson. So I'm seeing uh, Senate floor leader, Cindy O'Loughlin, she's shaking hands. There's a lot of Republican senators that are meeting their colleagues. Some of them, you know, are coming uh, across the hallway from somewhere they used to know. I see Senator Rusty Black, former representative there, Uh, Senator Holly Rader, a lot of shaking hands, a lot of, uh, you know, camaraderie. Um, I'm also seeing uh, Democrats that are also amongst that uh, senatorial procession um, that are basically designated to, like, walk in with um, the governor. So, so it sounds um, like a, Okay, keep going. <laughs> yeah, no, no, the people are, are ready. Um, and Yes, they're walking in, like, in a lot of shaking hands, a lot of, a lot of applauding. Uh, no governor quite yet, but this is a senatorial procession, so they're all going to get situated. I'm seeing lots of, um, like I said, camaraderie between people, their coworkers. It just, this is one of the few chances that they're really probably going to be in the chamber at all and chances to organize with them um, or just to mingle with them. Versus, you know, when they're in committee hearings or on official business, because at times there's definitely kind of considered a disconnect between the House and the Senate, mainly just because of how the two bodies work, where mm-hmm. the House moves a little quicker than the Senate. So uh, it's definitely kind of a different circumstance from them from normal. But um, they are all getting situated and walking. I will say I see Senator, uh, Senate President Pro Tem, Caleb Rowden, he's shaking hands, um, which again, it's kind of interesting to see the dichotomy of where he is compared to uh, he is mainly surrounded by other Republicans. And uh, I see a stray Democrat there too with him, but uh, not 
near uh, any Freedom Caucus members at the moment, but they are making their way to the point where I almost can't see them, which means that they're approaching the lectern and probably getting close to their seats. Um, but that's kind of the first part of this processional, <laughs> as it were, as far as the state of the state. Mm -hmm. And again, we're waiting for Governor Mike Parson's annual State of the State address. I'm talking with St. Louis Public Radio State House reporter Sarah Kellogg, who's there. Uh, you're there for your your third and uh, final State of the State from uh, Governor Mike Parson. Yes, not my yeah. final one. Yes, not <laughs> I'm, your I'm final still one. I'm here for the long haul, <laughs> but yes, I'm waiting for him to make his appearance. But mm -hmm. oh, and we have another gavel um, hit, so we're going to see what the Speaker of the House, Dean Parker, has to say. Okay. Oh, never mind. It's Mike Kehoe. That is Mike Kehoe speaking. Okay. Um, we have the Sergeant at Arms. So now we're going to go towards the procession of the colors. The doors are open. We're having Missouri State Troopers, and they are carrying both an American flag and the state flag. Mm -hmm. They're doing like a little presentation of colors. It's kind of quiet in the chamber right now. Okay. Um, <laughs> but they're going to get, which is why I'm, I'm a little quieter than I was. Um, but they're walking now towards the front of the chair of the lectern with the Missouri and the American flag. And they are entering now officially out of my eyesight, which means that they are at the lectern and they will be presenting the colors for the state of state. It's very quiet in here. <laughs> if you couldn't tell, you could hear a pin drop pretty much. But um, once they are finished with it, once this part is completed, we'll probably and we are the introduction of Parson himself. And we're now waiting for Governor Mike Parson to come up to the dais, take the lectern, to deliver his 2024 State of the State address. Yes, right now the Pledge of Allegiance. And are we... Um, so that was, they just did the state. Uh, the Please remain uh, standing and join me in the Pledge of Allegiance. Of allegiance. <laughs> mm -hmm. I pledge allegiance. Oh. Um, so that's where we're right, There we go, portion. right. And it looks like it is just full there, Sarah. Oh, yeah, there is not a, a stray seat available, especially in the gallery. It looks like there's maybe a couple of house seats put up and people are just going for those seats. Mm -hmm. um, Oh, there we go. They're okay. plotting the color guard for the, uh, the showing the color of the Sergeant of Arms. And so um, that's what this applause is for that you're hearing in my background. But, no, no, it's very full here. I don't see really an empty seat. It's a packed house. And now you have to wonder that whether or not this being, you know, whether the fact that this is Parsons' last speech indeed means that this is, like, busier than usual. You don't know. Sure. Um, so now they're doing a quorum call. So they're voting. Uh, Senate members are basically, or House members are voting yes on the quorum call and say they are here. And they're also doing a roll call for the senators. Um, so they're making sure everyone is accounted for <laughs> before the governor uh, makes his appearance in the House chamber. Mm -hmm. And again, what we are listening to here live from the State House um, in Jefferson City, we're waiting for Governor Mike Parson to deliver his 2024 State of the State address. <laughs> uh, we are still doing a roll call, and um, uh, yeah, it's it's a roll call right now. They're all taking their, um, making sure everybody's accounted for. 
Um, everyone is pretty, there's still some people standing, I think, because mainly they're, um, if people aren't familiar with the structure of the house, there's like a larger aisle right in the middle. Mm -hmm. And so while other representatives and house members that are on kind of the ends, the ends of that section are sitting down, there's uh, basically everybody standing alongside of the aisle because that is where Governor Parson will be walking through. Mm -hmm. um, so right now it's a lot of, um, there is a lot of seating. People are, you know, seated, ready to go, but there is a line of, legislators that are standing waiting for the governor to enter the chamber and to, you know, say hello, shake hands, all of that, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and making sure they say hi. Um, Mike Kehoe is just said there was a quorum established, so there is enough people to hear the speech. And now we have the joint committee for the governor, so now we have members of the House and the Senate are going to be leaving to the back of the chamber to escort Parson back to the front of the lectern. Mm -hmm. So now I'm watching a set of legislators, both senators and um, House members, leave towards the back of the chamber so they will be escorting Parson to the front. Okay. And so, so I mean, that there, is another part of it. Yeah, I mean, there are many parts of sort of the, the tradition, and if yes. we can call it sort of the pomp and circumstance that happens mm -hmm. sort of in the lead up to this day. Um, is there anything in particular that we're waiting for before uh, Governor Parson delivers his speech? Um, not too much. Um, oh, they're, well, they just welcomed Secretary of State Jerry Ashcroft. He is in the building, so they are applauding him. Um, but right now, as far as what we're waiting for, we're now just waiting for uh, the announcement of Carson. They are, there are state officials who are here, so Mike Kehoe is introducing them. Mm -hmm. uh, they just announced that Malik, the treasurer, is also here as well. Uh, as well as uh, Scott Fitzpatrick is here. That got quite a few applause because he is a former House member. He was the former budget director, so I'm sure there's still some uh, goodwill for <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> for uh, yeah. Representative Fitzpatrick. I did. I missed who that was for because I was talking about that. Uh, do you think that the, the controversy from this week? Do you feel any of that in in the room? Oh. Between, are you meaning between uh, some of the, and the controversy between Fitzpatrick and Ashcroft in particular? No, they're, no. they're just here for to hear Parson speak. I, maybe I, they're not seated next to each other. That's the most I can say. You know, right. I, I, there's not going to be really time for that. They're not going to be giving any speeches. Um, so no, I feel like there's not really animosity there. Mm -hmm. Keo is still introducing people who are in attendance. Okay. And before we get to the speech, if we can fit in a couple of other things, you uh, had talked with us about uh, foreign ownership of Missouri land that first week of mm -hmm. January. Remind us what that news was and what we might expect to come up uh, regarding that in 2024. Well, um, the governor issued a executive order from his office that pretty much bars any foreign purchasing of, of, of future farmland from Missouri that's within about a 10-mile radius of an active military base in the state. Um, he said that was the most that he could do under current statute, um, and that is a law and an issue that has been on the minds of lawmakers, at least, you know, the past session, it will be this year, too, of whether or not they're going to be banning any purchase of foreign land, not just within a military base. So we'll see if he mentions that at all. And that might be one of the few areas of policy that he does, you know, talk about, because that is something that he, he mentioned before session even started with the action of this executive order. So we'll see if there is anything on that. I know it's a priority for um, some members of the House and Senate. What is interesting to see is whether what that will look like, because there are some people who want a total ban, and there are others that don't want to, you know, quote unquote, punish uh, allies of the state from purchasing that land. So we're going to see what that language actually ends up looking like if the legislature does move forward on that. Mm -hmm. And some of what you described, Sarah, um, about what is happening there, 
we might learn about at the, about that at school, for example. And school choice is something that has come up uh, in the past and also this year too. Tell us about that. Um, I'm sorry. Did you mention? I it's, oh, it's about, quite loud in here. Yeah, did you about mention school, school choice? choice? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, that is definitely something that was going to be on the floor very soon. Um, the Missouri, at least on the Missouri House side, as far as I can tell. Um, they passed out uh, Representative Brad Pollitt's bill, and he's carried open enrollment for the past couple of open enrollment bill for the past couple of sessions. Um, it is already out of committee, and it was going to be heard this week, but because of the ice storm mm. um, that delayed the rules committee from meeting, and therefore they were not able to debate it on the floor this week. It is slated for next week. And what open enrollment does is it pretty much allows non-resident students to enroll in school districts that they don't live in. And so that's what the open enrollment would do. Right. Um, but that's coming up. That's that's not a that's not a theoretical. That's most likely going to be heard next week. Okay. And then, in terms of Dean Plocker and the controversy involving House Speaker Dean Plocker, an ethics investigation. Do you expect that to have any effect on governing? Um, I don't believe it has so far, and I don't really expect it to until the conclusion of the report and the investigation. That is still going on, and honestly, I, I, I have been actually, with everything happening with the Senate, um, I do imagine it more to be, um, I, I haven't basically seen it impact the work of the House so far, and I don't expect it to. So now the doors have opened again, mm -hmm. and now we are on the committee that was selected to escort Governor Parson. So now we have another series of shaking hands and sure. saying hello. So these are the representatives and senators that were chose to be on that escort committee. This is a bipartisan and bi-chamber committee, basically both Democratic and Republican lawmakers um, from both chambers. I see, you know, Senate Minority Leader John Rizzo's on that committee, as is, uh, uh, you know, Republican Senator Lincoln Huff, who's the budget chair. I see Assistant Minority Floor Leader Richard Brown. Um, you know, it's a, it's a nice uh, mix of representatives. I see a couple that also that are like in their final couple year, their final year of service in the Missouri legislature. So Senator Arthur, Lauren Arthur, Democrat, she is term limited this year. I see Representative Peter Meredith, he's term limited. Mm -hmm. And so there's also a couple people that, you know, aren't going to be back next year, which you have to wonder maybe that was why they were picked. But if we're not, either way, they're on the committee and they're, they're making their way towards the front of the lectern where the senators will be seated up front and the representatives are probably going to go back to their seats. Yeah. Um, I think we're on the second, I think we're on this, this last step. I think we have, uh, I think the next thing is, is the entrance of the governor. Himself. Okay, great. And again, we're waiting for Governor Mike Parson to deliver his annual State of the State address. This is special coverage from St. Louis Public Radio, and I'm talking with State House reporter Sarah Kellogg. You know, we talked at the top of the hour um, about this, but just remind us again, why is Parson's speech so important? You know, this is his last one. Um, and ultimately, the, the, the regular answer is that this is his uh, opportunity to outline the budget, the things that he wants to see. It's the first step in the budget process, which is the governor's recommendations. Um, and then, um, so that's the first part of it. It's budget outlining. But the other part of it is this is his last one. And so it's going to be a lot of talk of legacy and things that he's accomplished. And they are now opening the doors. We're going to, it is about to start. They are opening the doors. And there is the governor. So he is walking through the chamber right now. He just shook the hand of Minority Leader um, Crystal Quaid, House Minority Leader, and then also uh, Majority Floor Leader John Patterson. He's in a night, he's wearing a red tie, you know, and he's just shaking hands and saying hello um, as he makes his way through the chamber. He's wearing a dark suit. I think it's a black suit, but it could be navy. It's hard to tell from my eyes. Right. But wearing a bright red tie, shaking hands. He's 
all grins as he's as he's meeting, uh, saying hello to several representatives that again are lined up along the side of this center aisle. So he is making his way towards the lectern as we speak. And there are many people to shake hands with there. Hmm? There are many people to shake hands with there as uh, Oh, there's as a lot of people to shake hands with. Makes his way <laughs> oh, yeah. down. Oh yeah, he's he has to definitely takes him a little bit more if there was no one here for sure. And he's not really missing a single hand as he goes down, so He's saying hello. He's, you know, uh, he, he's making his way down towards the lectern mm -hmm. for sure, but it's definitely a little slower if there hadn't been a lot of people who wanted to say hello. Mm -hmm. um, but he's about to the point where he's almost not going to be in my purview, which sure. means that he's going to be approaching the lectern. Um, he is making his way up towards the lectern as we speak, and there was just continued applause from him, not only from Republicans, but from Democrats as well. Mm -hmm. And again, it's an interesting juxtaposition because House Democrats, at least the last few years, have been pretty happy with his budget recommendations because of his investments in things like childcare and teacher pay. So it's gonna be really interesting to me to see how this speech is recepted. Because sometimes there's the classic, you know, Republicans stand up when he makes a point. Well, there have been times that Democrats have stood up alongside with him as well. And so it'll be really interesting to see how this speech is received by both parties this year in the session. So, to provide um, so it looks like he's approached, the, the applause is getting a lot louder. Okay, he's getting closer. And I believe the speech is about to begin. And, you know, in terms of what you're seeing and what people can imagine if they're not watching the live stream, will the governor be up there by himself as he's delivering the, the state of this, the state? I believe it's actually about to begin, um, and it looks like right now, well, right now he is standing, I can kind of see in the camera, right now he is alongside Dean Plocker, but I believe he will be there by himself. Mm -hmm. All right, he is speaking. All right, so here I we go. And here is Governor Mike Parson, just about to deliver his 2024 State of the State address. I thought maybe a speaker was going to do this. Oh, okay, all right. Well, first of all, thank you, Lieutenant Governor, uh, Mr. Speaker, statewide officials, members of the General Assembly, esteemed guests, and it is my honor to welcome, for the first time in our state's history, judges of the first ever female majority Supreme Court of Missouri. There's another uh, person I want to recognize today that uh, I normally don't do it, but I'm going to do it very quickly. It is a gentleman that has been doing this job for 20 years, making sure these teleprompters work correctly. Todd Mayfield is doing his 20th session here in the state of Missouri. Todd, thank you. Well, to say the least, it's an honor to be joined by the First Lady as I welcome, as I welcome to the dais for the final time as the 57th governor of the great state of Missouri. During our time as governor, we've accomplished more than any of us probably thought was ever possible. But I wouldn't be standing here today without my support system, 
my family. And that's where I want to start today. First and foremost, the First Lady. Teresa has been by my side every step of the way, and after 38 years of marriage, I wouldn't be the husband, the father, the gramps, or governor I am today without her. Thank you for serving in a role you never asked for, but doing it each and every day with grace and passionate commitment to best serve the people of Missouri. Ladies and gentlemen, the First Lady of the State of Missouri. There's another group of people with me today, and it's my family. And uh, I am one of the most blessed people in the world to have the family I have, and for all of them to be here. And it really started with my son and my daughter years ago that really made me a better person, having those two come in my life, and they're both here today with us. Uh, naturally, they're the ones that have all my grandkids, and uh, I, I just can't say enough of how much my children's meant to me in my life and my grandkids. And most of them are here today, but I do have one I want to give a little bit of a shout out to. It is his first public event at the ripe age of six months. So he is with us here today for the first time. And then also I have another grand, great grandchild on the way that's here. My brothers are here. I have nieces and nephews and cousins brothers, all my family from here, but I tell you, there's two things I know in life that, that are important. That's God Almighty and my family. I love all you guys that are here today. Would you please recognize my family for, and show them your appreciation? Please rise. Like the legislators in this room and Missourians across this state, my faith, family, and the next generations are the driving force behind the change we have made in Missouri. And last year, when I stood before you, I highlighted many of our historic achievements we've accomplished together. As we laid out bold and historic proposals, I declared that this governor this dad, this Gramps, is not done yet. And I tell you, we are not done yet. And while that's still true, I'm here to tell you we're getting close. After serving six sessions in the House, six sessions in the Senate, two sessions as Lieutenant Governor, and now my sixth and final session as your 57th Governor, I am expected to say this is a bittersweet moment. But while the view from this dais facing all of you is a fine sight to see, but it is no comparison to the view of that Polk County farm behind the windshield of my John Deere tractor.
But look, I promise I will think of all of you occasionally. <laughs> but in all seriousness, I'll be leaving here with my head held high. Because like many of you who came here for the right reasons, we never wavered from those wise words on our capital and inscribed in our state seal. Let the good of the people be the supreme law. In every decision we make, we must look to the effects on the next generations and the ability for them to achieve their American dream. In every decision, we must put people first. Easy said, but hard to do. It's a simple idea that has been our guiding principle since the very beginning. And that's our final commitment to you. Until our final day, we will continue to put people first. When I became governor, Missouri was tired of the turmoil, political infighting, and self-involved personalities. They were tired of quitters. And when I first stepped into the governor's office, amidst the thousands of camera clicks, hundreds of shouting questions, and countless state, local, and national media, we closed the chapter on scandal and began a new direction because there was no turning back. We declared a fresh start and the return of stability. We committed to ensuring the next generations have their opportunity at the American dream. We promised the return of integrity to state government. And above all, we promised to return people first mentality. And today, I firmly believe we have done just that. Every year, we have approved conservative and balanced budgets. We have maintained our AAA credit rating, and we've always left funds on the bottom line. Actually, with the budget we outlined today, we will leave office with over $1.5 billion on the bottom line, which has never been done before in our state's history. We are also pleased to report that we have paid down Missouri's debt by over $600 million, leaving the state with 53% less debt than when we started. That is quite the contrast compared to what we are seeing happening in Washington, D.C. In Missouri, we don't leave future generations to pick up the tab. We pay our bills and we put people first. <laughs> Working with all of you, balanced and conservative budgets have always been the norm, never the exception. We've always been more interested in giving back Missourians hard-earned dollars rather than spending them. In turn, 
That creates jobs, business growth, and increased revenues to the state. In fact, state revenues have increased 40% since 2018, with a significant growth coming from sales revenue. Not income tax, not corporate tax, and not fuel taxes, but from revenue created by Missourians spending their own money, not government programs. And one of the huge factors is the three separate tax cuts we approved, including the largest in our state's history. We have decreased Missourians' tax burdens by over 20%, unleashing an economic powerhouse in the state of Missouri. When I became governor, we were ranked 42nd for GDP growth and last among our Midwest neighbors. Today, we are ranked 23rd in the nation and top five in the Midwest for GDP growth. That's a real reckoning here in Jeff City. That's not all talk and all hot air. That is a true reckoning of growth opportunity that Missourians have come to expect from this administration and state government. That's our leadership creating a real formula for success. And that's something all of us should celebrate in this chamber. Overall, Missouri now has the 13th lowest tax burden of any state in the nation. And under our administration, our unemployment rate fell to 2.1%, the lowest rate ever recorded in our state's history. Actually, it has been so low that our problem is not creating jobs, but filling jobs. Since becoming governor, we have added more than 110,000 jobs to our economy and closed out the year ranked 15th nationally for job creations. And today, as I stand before you for the final time as Missouri's 57th governor, I declare that the state of our state is stronger than it has ever been. You're listening to live special coverage of Missouri Governor Mike Parson's annual State of the State Address. We've done it all by putting people first. And that started with state government. Nothing we do in this room is possible without the dedicated public servants across the state to implement these ideas. But when I became governor, state government was quickly becoming underappreciated, understaffed, and underpaid. That's why we approved three historic pay increases to recruit and retain quality talent across state government, raising team member pay by over 20% since 2018. And let me just say, the investment in our state employees have been worth every penny.
And that's why this year we are proposing an additional 3.2% cost of living increase for all of our state employees. Representing our more than 47,000 state team members here today is my cabinet. Through every crisis, I turn to my cabinet and their teams, not the federal government, and I have always maintained that the answers to our problems are in this state and among our people. If we just allow ourselves to put egos and self-importance to the side and just listen, and while they may have already been recognized, I want to ask my cabinet to stand with me for one last time. I always say that being a good leader is not about being the best, but it's making those around you better. And today, I thank you and your teams for proving that to be true. Putting people first is something we implemented across state government because we set the example from the governor's office. From the start, we got straight to work. We completed the largest deregulation effort in our state's history, eliminating nearly one out of every five state regulations. And during COVID-19, we waived over 600 more regulations. By working with the General Assembly, we made many of these changes permanent in statute and improved the regulatory environment in Missouri. Because to be honest with you, many of these rules and laws should have never existed in the first place. When I became governor, we also inherited nearly 4,000 pending clemency applications. While I'm a law and order governor, 4,000 people in limbo waiting for an answer is not how we do good business. Whether we approved them or we denied, we set out to provide answers. Today, I am proud to announce that the clemency backlog we inherited has been totally cleared for the first time in decades. But as a former sheriff, this reform did not mean we were letting people out of prison or forgiving violent criminals. We pardoned people who deserved it people who had truly turned their lives around, people like Kenny Batson, who joins us here today. In his youth, Kenny was drinking, getting into fights, and found himself on the wrong side of the law. 
But today, Kenny has turned his life completely around. Kenny is a proud husband and father of three kids. He earned both a bachelor's and master's degree and has been a pastor for more than 20 years, including service as a hospice chaplain. Kenny's and others like him might have made some mistakes when they were young, but he earned a second chance. Please join me in recognizing Kenny Batson. Another way our office has been able to capitalize on historic opportunity is appointing over 155 Missouri judges and three Supreme Court judges, meaning more than 40% of the judiciary has been appointed by our administration. That's more appointments than any governor in our state's history. By focusing on core conservative values, We've truly reshaped judiciary for generations to come and guaranteed a judiciary that upholds the law and not the politics of the moment. <laughs> Additionally, in putting the people of Missouri first, our office put politics aside and appointed five strong statewide office holders, which has never happened before in our state's history. Lieutenant Governor Kehoe, Attorney General Bailey, Auditor Fitzpatrick, Treasurer Malik, and though he's not here today, Senator Smith. And I thank all of you for stepping up and answering the call to serve Missourians, and I trust you will never quit on the people of the great state of Missouri. And today, I want to highlight another one of our quality appointments. In the city of St. Louis, Circuit Attorney Gabe Gore. We didn't pick Mr. Gore because of his politics. Matter of fact, we never even asked. It was because he clearly cared for the people of St. Louis. He valued strong communities, fighting time, fighting crime, returning law and order, and putting people first. The level of professionalism between the circuit attorney's office, the Metro Police, the courts, the attorney general's office, and our office is greater than I have ever experienced. Please join me in recognizing St. Louis circuit attorney, Gabe Gore. When the history books tell the story of Missouri's 57th governor, I hope it's our workforce development and infrastructure accomplishments that stand out. And this year, 
As we propose our final priorities as governor, there is no turning back. We know that guaranteeing Missouri's strong foundation starts with a quality education in our children. This year, we will once again fully fund the K-12 foundation formula with an additional $120 million over last year's level, and we will also fully fund transportation across the state of Missouri. In total, our administration has increased funding for K-12 education by $700 million since 2018. And I'll note that's all state funding, not the federal government. And at the same time, our administration and this General Assembly took the first step towards school choice for more Missouri families through our education savings account program. And whether it's public, private, charter, or Christian, we don't care where Missourians are getting a quality education as long as they get one. This year, to do our part on teacher pay, we are including funding to increase teacher pay baseline, increase teacher baseline pay to $40,000 per year. This represents a $15,000 increase for teacher pay during our administration. also recommending $6 million for Career Ladder. Together, these programs have benefited tens of thousands of teachers in every corner across our state. We've also made historic investments in Missouri's higher education. We've increased higher education core funding by 24% and invested $1.2 billion in state-of-the-art capital improvements and upgrades on our college campuses. In this year's budget, we included another 3% core increase for our four-year institutions and community colleges, and $54 million from MoExcel's workforce training program on our college campuses. When I graduated high school, I went straight into the workforce and joined the United States Army. And for me, there was no turning back. My path is similar to many Missourians, as nearly 60% of our workforce don't have college degrees. And that's okay, because we all know it doesn't take a college education to be successful. Since 2018, we have helped establish, upgrade, and transform 
57 career and technical education institutions across our state, more of our young people are earning a quality skill, a certificate or credential that will help secure them a big or a good paying job without a college degree. We are also upskilling our current workforce and helping them secure the skills they need to succeed. Since its upgrade in 2019, Missouri One Start has helped train more than 173,000 workers. Additionally, since its creation, our Fast Track program has benefited over 1,700 students with more than 55% going into health care. And ladies, I want you to listen up. And more than two-thirds of that being women. We have also made tremendous progress by prioritizing apprenticeships in this state. And joining us today are some of the individuals who have benefited from our historic support. In the upper gallery, we have Isaac Lowe from Four Rivers Career Center, Kayla Putnam, an apprenticeship and Army Reservist from Springfield, and Ricky Schmo, who is a trucking apprenticeship from Pleasant Hill. I firmly believe that with hard work, determination, and a skill of some kind, anyone can achieve the American dream, and these individuals are proving it. Please join me in recognizing these hardworking folks and others like them across the state. You're listening to live special coverage from St. Louis Public Radio of Missouri Governor Mike Parson's annual State of the State Address. This group represents just a sample of the more than 57,000 new apprenticeships we have added since becoming governor. Under our administration, yearly apprenticeship activity in Missouri has grown by 100%. That's why this year we're including another $3 million investment to support even more youth apprenticeship opportunities. As you can see, these targeted investments truly make a difference in the lives of Missourians. And thanks to our past efforts, I'm proud to report that Missouri is ranked second in the United States of America for apprenticeship, and that's something we should all be proud of. Like any challenge in this state, we rise to it. We don't hide from it. This year, we are also investing another $10 million for advanced semiconductor research, development, and skills training, as well as nearly $7 million to support critical mineral development in Missouri. Missouri ranks fourth in the nation for new manufacturing when it comes to semiconductors and critical minerals. We can lead, and we will lead, 
to ensure we never have to rely on nations like China again. Another focus in the workforce development arena that the First Lady and I are especially proud of is JAG Missouri. JAG includes students who may be struggling academically, who may have found themselves in some trouble, or are high risk. When we first began JAG initiative back in our Lieutenant Governor days, JAG was supporting just six programs and serving 225 students. Today, JAG Missouri supports 112 programs and serves more than 4,000 Missouri students with a high school graduation rate of 98%. And that's thanks in large part to the First Lady for taking this program under her wing. In the upper gallery, we have current and former JAG students joining us today. Thanks to JAG, these students are well on their way, whether that's college, the military, or straight into the workforce. And with your help, we can support this life-changing program with an investment of $3.8 million. But if you choose not to stand behind these students in the upper gallery and the thousands like them across the state, it won't be me you have to answer to, but the First Lady herself. <laughs> Would you please join me in giving these JAG students and specialists here with us today a round of applause. When it comes to preparing Missourians for the workforce, we know we are on solid ground. The biggest thing we can do is simply continue. But today, our state is in a critical need of quality early learning programs. Business leaders estimate that the lack of early learning programs is costing our state over $1 billion annually. And over 85% of Missourians believe Early childhood learning supports a child's success, parent success, and a business success. But today, we only have the capacity to serve just 39% of Missouri's children in licensed facilities, and it's time for change. This year, along Senator Arthur and Representative Shields, we're again proposing three new child care tax credit programs these programs will help improve access and affordability for families seeking child care across the state of Missouri. Additionally, we're we are continuing funding for the expansion of pre-kindergarten programs. These are common sense measures that are good for business, that are great for families, and best for our Missouri children. Joining us today, Katherine Gaudier, 
and her child, Theo, who utilized Missouri's child care subsidies. Yet Catherine still finds it difficult to find quality child care. Catherine is a full-time nursing student that uses Mineral Areas College's early learning program. Without help, she's not sure she could afford or find care for Theo. Catherine only wants the best possible education for Theo, something I think we can all agree on. And that should be the minimum for every child in Missouri. That's why this year we are proposing a $52 million investment in Missouri's child care subsidy program to make sure infants, toddlers, and children like Theo can receive the quality care they need and deserve. Please join me in welcome Catherine, Theo, and Program Director Jennifer Sykes from Mineral Era College. Another issue affecting Missouri children is the fentanyl crisis. Drugs pouring into our country through the southern border is devastating Missouri families. Last year, dozens of Missouri children were lost due to fentanyl exposure. And I'm going to say that one more time. They were lost to fentanyl exposure. They didn't use it. They didn't do anything. They were just exposed to it, and they lost their lives. This year, alongside Senator Thompson Rader and Representative Parker, we are proposing legislation that guarantees stricter punishments for exposing children and minors to fentanyl. The fentanyl crisis is here, and it's tearing families and communities apart. Children dying from fentanyl is 100% preventable. And while President Biden and the federal government failed to do their jobs by securing our southern border, Missouri will act. Also protecting Missouri children and our most vulnerable by supporting Attorney General Andrew Bailey's plan to find, prosecute, and punish human traffickers in the state of Missouri. Together, these initiatives are not only pro-children and pro-family, but pro-life as well. And speaking of pro-life, I want to take this opportunity to highlight our historic success in Missouri's fight for life. When I came to Jefferson City, nearly 8,000 elective abortions were performed annually in Missouri. And as I stand before you today, I am proud to report that number is zero. 
You're listening to live special coverage from St. Louis Public Radio of Missouri Governor Mike Parson's annual State of the State Address. Another priority of this administration, roads, bridges, and Missouri's infrastructure. While roads and bridge repair might not be the most exciting topic, it is the one that impacts all Missourians the most. Infrastructure was one of the first major initiatives we took on. And five and a half years ago, working with all of you, we set out to repair and replace 250 Missouri's poorest bridges. For the first time in our state's history, we leveraged general revenue and bonding authority to fund our Focus on Bridges program. The way in which we created this program allowed us to pull down additional funds to not only repair 250 overlooked and crumbling Missouri bridges, but it freed up additional resources for major projects like the Buck O'Neill Bridge, the I-270 North, and the new Roachport Bridge. Many doubted it would ever happen, but as I stand before you today, I say mission accomplished. Focus on bridges is complete. I-270 I finished, and by this time next year, we fully expect Roachport and Buck O'Neill to be completed as promised. We truly believe that our focus on bridge program will be the model moving forward. Because although focus was in the name, it doesn't mean everything else stopped. In total, under our administration, we have repaired or replaced over 1,000 bridges across our state. We have repaired nearly 17,000 miles of Missouri roadway in five short years. That's about 50% of all Missouri's entire highway system that has been replaced or repaired. And I'll remind you, we have the seventh largest system in the nation. And as for rural Missouri, with an unprecedented funding of $200 million, nearly 2,000 miles of letters roads have been completed. When I became governor, our statewide transportation improvement program for infrastructure projects across the entire state stood at $2.5 billion. Today, our STIP is funded at nearly $14 billion. And joining us today in the upper gallery are the men and women who are making it all happen. 
Each of these eight men and women represent over 130 years of experience and the more than 4,600 MoDOT employees across our state. Under our administration, we've kept this group busy. So please join me in recognizing their contributions to our state. The expansion of I-70 has been talked about in this building for decades. Decades of hot air, decades of passing the buck. Under our administration and this General Assembly and the leadership of Lincoln Huff, decades of inaction has turned into action and this summer, construction on I-70 is set to begin in Columbia and from there, let's just say there is no turning back. But it's the strategic way in how we chose to fund I-70 that I bring up the project today. With the smart use of our resources, and efficient and effective work, we're projecting a I-70 completion, not only on time, but with savings too. And two days ago, we received more great news from Congressman Graves that we will be receiving over $90 million in additional funds to put towards projects on I-70. With those savings and these additional funds today, we're announcing our recommendation to establish the I-44 Improvement Fund. This fund will build on the nearly $150 million already included in the current step. That's right, we aren't just laying the foundation to expand and improve one interstate across our state, but two interstates. Now that all sounds good, but I have more. Today we are also ranked second in the United States for capital and bridge projects, ninth for improving rural roads, and 11th for the cost effectiveness and conditions of our roadways. Another important piece of infrastructure is broadband. Working with you, our administration has invested over $400 million towards broadband expansion, making tens of thousands of homes, business, and farm connections across the state. Thanks to these efforts, and now another $1.7 billion is coming to our state through federal funds that former Senator Blunt helped to secure, we believe 
that in the next five years, the digital divide in Missouri will be closed once and for all. In less than six years, we've accomplished more than most governors are able to in eight years. And I'll remind you, we did it all while challenged with some of the most unprecedented events in our state's history. Whether it was the duck boat crisis, floods, droughts, tornadoes, civil unrest, train derailments, or in 2020, when a global pandemic came knocking at our doors. A crisis that came with no roadmap or playbook. We never backed down or passed the buck. Oh, have there been critics? Sure. But critics are a dime a dozen. And one thing I have learned in life, you will never be criticized by someone doing more than you. It's always be the person doing the less who makes the most noise. <laughs> Through all the criticism, we never stop working for the people of Missouri. And for all my like-minded colleagues who stood with me, fought alongside me, and who came here to be good public servants and put people first. I want you to listen closely to what I say next, because these are your wins too. Together, we have reshaped our Supreme Court and judiciary as a whole. We protected the Second Amendment rights, focused on law and order, and safeguarded Missouri's landmark castle doctrine. We have fought the fight for life and reduced the number of abortions in our state from 8,000 annually to zero. We've streamlined state agencies, supported our team members, and reduced the size of state government. We built over 1,000 bridges, repaired 50% of our entire highway system, and crafted lasting partnerships. We've cut through nearly 20% of the regulations on the books and made state government more efficient and effective while unleashing a economic development. We've maintained our AAA credit rating and achieved the lowest unemployment ever recorded in our state's history. We've paid our bills. We've left the state of Missouri with 50% less debt than we started. We left $1.5 billion on the bottom line. We've created over 110,000 jobs and brought $14.5 billion in new business investments. We've cut taxes three times and reduced income tax burdens by over 20%, with the largest income tax cut in our state's history. No one, I mean no one, has gone to bat for the people of Missouri like this administration and you, and today we have won. You're listening to live special coverage from St. Louis Public Radio of Missouri Governor Mike Parson's annual State of the State Address.
as I began to wrap up here, I want to recognize another group of special people who helped us make it all happen. These individuals are truly the best of the best. I couldn't have asked for better people to serve with in the office of governor and with six million Missourians across our state. They're often overlooked and overworked, but their impact on this state is beyond measure. We've taken on challenges that no one could ever imagine. They never complained, they never gave up, and above all, they believed. They believed in the mission. They believed in our people. And they believed in the extraordinary capabilities of Missourians to achieve an even better tomorrow. I'm filled with pride that we have public servants of such caliber serving our great state. As the sun begins to set on my public service career, I know their talents will continue benefiting Missourians today, tomorrow, and years to come. To the most loyal and hardworking people I have ever had the honor of working alongside, from the bottom of my heart and on the behalf of this entire state, I say thank you. With the members of my staff, both past and present, please stand to be recognized. As a final message to this body, I'm reminded of an old saying. A society grows great when old men and women plant trees, the shade of which they know they will never sit in. Summarize, it's all about putting people first. Ladies and gentlemen, that's been the focus of this administration. We've planted the seeds today for a better Missouri tomorrow. The First Lady and I may never be able to fully realize the work we've done here alongside of all of you. But that was never the purpose in the first place. The point is that all of our kids and our grandkids across the state will. With faith, family, and freedom at the forefront, honoring the Constitution, and leading with the ideas of the Declaration of Independence, putting people first, that's what leadership has been to us. In Missouri, our economy is strong. Our democracy is strong. Our people are strong. And we can keep it that way if we continue to put people first. <laughs> Missourians took a chance on me and place their confidence in me and my team to put the people of the state first. You gave me the largest victory margin of any Republican governor in modern history, and I will forever be grateful. When I got the call to become governor, my big brother told me, little brother, 
you come back home the same way you're leaving here today, with your head held high. Well, I'll be keeping that promise. But firstly, and I will return to the farm with our heads held high. And if we are honored enough to be considered by Missourians as a pretty good governor, a decent guy, or someone who never forgot where he came from, then it will all be worth it. Words cannot express the sincere appreciation I have for this state and our people. So for one final time before this chamber today, I simply say to the more than six million Missourians who I've had the absolute privilege of serving, it has truly been the honor of my life to be your 57th governor of the great state of Missouri. God bless you, God bless Missouri, and God bless the United States of America. Thank you. That was Missouri Governor Mike Parson delivering his final State of the State address. I'm Elaine Chong, host at St. Louis Public Radio. We continue to be joined by our sister stations in Missouri, KBIA, KSMU, and KRCU. The Democrats declined to give a traditional broadcast response to Parson's speech, but are holding a press conference soon in the state capitol. St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent Jason Rosenbaum now joins me from the state capitol in Jefferson City. Jason, welcome. Thank you for having me. Jason, what stood out to you about Governor Parson's speech? It was really a recounting of what he feels is a consequential legacy in, in office. And I think by any de determinable metrics, it has been consequential. Not only did he deal with the pandemic and he presided over this like unprecedented amount of money coming into the state, but he also was able to sign into law very impactful policies. He mentioned the fact that the state has now banned most abortions. He also has um, done a lot of things with, with building buildings on colleges and universities and other projects that were funded both with state and federal money, as well as I-70 and potentially I-44. Um, I think that he also mentioned that some of his decisions have not always been popular, which kind of drives the point home that just because somebody's consequential does not mean that everybody believes that the consequences are, are all good. Not a huge amount of new policy initiatives announced here beyond just asking for uh, more incentives for child care again and also stiffening penalties uh, for fentanyl. But it, I, all in all, it was it was a lot about his legacy. And there wasn't anything in it that, that took you by surprise? Was it pretty much what you had expected? I had basically expected that he would spend his last state of the state talking about his time in office, um, you know, with the chaos and acrimony that's going on in the legislature right now and the fact that it is an election year. I don't think there's a lot of expectations that Parson is going to sign sweeping policy changes into law. Also, the budget, um, while not insignificant, the revenue growth has not been as expansive as other years. So he doesn't necessarily have the wiggle room he did in the prior states of the state, state of the states, sorry, uh, to announce like major financial initiatives like the I-70 construction. One thing I did note that was a little bit surprising 
was the fact that Congressman Sam Graves, a Republican from Tarkio and the chairman of the House Transportation Committee, was able to get money for I-70, and that money will help pay for the, the, the groundwork for the expansion of I-44, which I know is a big priority in South Central Missouri, especially our listeners in Rolla, as well as uh, Southwest Missouri. Mm-hmm. Now, insofar as what he outlined as being priorities, do you see any areas where his own party as a contingent is likely to push back? I think that the biggest pushback last year was on trying to provide state assistance to help child care facilities. Mm-hmm. Even though this is an initiative that has the support of powerful groups like the Missouri Chamber of Commerce, and it's become a more Republican idea at, over the last couple of years, there are still a number of Republicans in the Senate that just don't like the idea of states providing aid to to child care. Um, I, I, the, the arguments are usually around the fact that these are private businesses and they should fall or stand on their own in, in the marketplace. Obviously, child care, though, is is a very unique type of industry, and it is also an industry that is often required for parents to be able to work um, and not just stay home and watch their kids. So I think that a lot of legislators see childcare as an exception to the whole free market dogma, but that isn't a universally embraced philosophy, mm-hmm. especially among more conservative Republicans. Jason Rosenbaum is a political correspondent for St. Louis Public Radio. Thank you for your analysis, Jason. Thank you. Also, thanks to our statewide audience. You've been listening to special coverage of the Missouri State of the State Address. In St. Louis, I'm Elaine Cha. Thank you for listening. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.